Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, used the world as a testing ground for his watches, sending them to the most extreme locations, supporting 20th century explorers in their quest for discovery. As the 21st century unfolds, Rolex continues the legacy of its founder, supporting the explorers of today on their new mission to make the planet perpetual. The Earth is dependent on the individuals and organisations committed to finding solutions to preserve our home, if not for us, then for future generations. And with the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative, we're one step closer to a planet with this hope. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on Rolex.org. Eight billion. That's the recorded number of people who live on Earth as of January 2023 a number which is expected to keep rising by more than a percent every year. But how many humans can the Earth support until the strain on its natural resources becomes too much? We have already plus 1.5 degree warming increased. 90% of the water just gone. As populations grow, habitats decline as we make more space for agriculture. More water use increases the risk of drought and urban sprawl spreads. The leave from the rural areas to the cities, they cross the border to go to the neighboring countries because everyone has to eat, everyone has to protect his family. With the global population expected to reach 11 billion by the end of the century, the impact that humans have on our planet's biodiversity is expected to accelerate unless steps are taken to reduce consumption and modify our current global food system. We are not only the victim, we are fighting to build the solutions and I hope that can give the examples to be aspire. Is it possible to live in harmony with our natural world and put an end to sacrificing the Earth's ecosystem for our benefit? For me, being born as indigenous person is already getting born an activist. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Today, the woman who is mapping the future of Africa's resources. In this episode, we're in Paris. It's a chilly but bright January morning. Despite being fairly overcast, the Parisian architecture still looks magnificent as myself and the team travel out of the bustling city and into its sprawling suburbs where we meet Hindu Umaru Ibrahim at her home in the French capital. Firstly, thanks so much for coming. Uh, My name is Hindu Umaru Ibrahim. I am from Chad, a Bororo woman from indigenous communities there. And I am a... uh, founder of uh, a non-profit organization called Indigenous Women and People Association of Chad. How did you end up in Paris? <laughs> I ended up in Paris by love. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got married to a French man because, of course, like uh, I break a lot of rules, of course. Being an Indigenous person, getting married to someone outside of my community, my country, my continent... So Hindu mentioned briefly there that she's a rule breaker, and she's not wrong. Although I'd argue a better way to phrase it is that Hindu is an expert at pushing the boundaries. Her husband lives in Paris, but her home is Chad, the landlocked country in North Central Africa, known for its vibrant multicultural communities, and ironically for the theme of this episode, the second largest wetland in Africa. Chad is the birthplace of Hindu's passion for environmental advocacy. Working on behalf of her people, the Mbororo tribe, Hindu founded the Association of Indigenous Pool Women and Peoples of Chad in 1999. 
I asked Hindi what challenges her tribe and home community are currently facing. So right now in Chad, Niger, Nigeria, we face a bigger flood of our life. Thousands of people become homeless and hundreds of people died because just of the flooding. And it's come overnight and they lose economic, they lose lives, they lose culture. And it is still to today where we are talking, people are not living at home. I mean, the place that they call home. It's the real impact of the climate change. I imagine that must be particularly bad given that people in that part of the world are presumably somewhat used to drought and, and dry periods and, and have maybe it made some adaptations to cope with that, but are not so used to the sort of rainfall that brings floods like that, right? Yeah, so we used to have some time you got flood and some time you have the drought, so there is not enough rainwater and then all the crops that you grow up or the pastures, mm. they dried up. But when you get a big flood that comes, it is flooding everything all the crops and the home of the peoples. And that creates the food insecurity. And peoples do not have other choice. Mm. So they have to do migration. They live from the uh, rural areas to the cities. Mm. And sometimes they cross the border to go to the neighboring countries because everyone has to eat mm -hmm. and everyone has to protect his family. Mm. So it's become a social issue. So one crisis brought all the rest of the crisis with. You mentioned there about the about the crops and some of them being flooded. Um, what are the needs of people there in terms of the sort of resources they need to have happy, healthy lives of, of the sort we all want to leave? You know, I'm thinking food, water, energy, timber. What 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 are we what are we talking about? So we are talking about the basic one, where they can feed their families for the twelve months a year. So we get the rainy season who used to be from six months to nine months, and now between maybe four and six. And that impact the crops that people are growing. We have to adapt our way of life. So we have to stay around like Chad during the dry season, between two to three months, navigating around the green areas and wetland of the Lake Chad. Let's sort of zoom out a little second, because you mentioned Lake Chad there. And that's something I remember, you know, it's one of those geography case studies that, you know, as a kid, I, you know, studied in school, you know, and uh, as people around the world have heard about. I mean, just you'll have seen it more firsthand than I have, obviously. Just give people a sense of how Lake Chad has changed over time. Uh, right. So Lake Chad used to be 25,000 kilometers square of the fresh water. You have more than 40 million people living around it and depended for resources. And when I got born around 1980, the lake just like shrink to 10,000. And right now, it's between 2,000 and 3,000 kilometers squares. So 90% of the water just gone because of the heat. Because in Chad, we have already plus 1.5 degree warming increased. That's mean during the dry season, the temperature can go to 48 and 50 degrees Celsius. This is a lot. So you said 1.5 degrees. One say, faster, say faster than the global average, which Very has been fast. about 1.1, 1.2. And yeah. that's how the lake chat is important for us because it is the way that feeding all the peoples who now losing their livelihood. 
just given those sort of quite shocking numbers about late Chad and about how it already changed you know, by the time you were born and then it's even more in your lifetime, just, just give a sort of more personal take on those changes. What were your sort of memories of it as a child? I have like a beautiful memory that now I'm very worried the younger generation do not going to see that. So when I was growing up, uh, I go to the city to go to school with my mom. And during the holiday, we used to run around all the small lakes. We have a lot of colorful bears. I used to see them. We play with the red one, the blue one, the green one, the yellow one. So, so colorful and beautiful bears that we play with. But now they are gone. And that made me very sad. Do you think that was quite crucial for making you what you are today? You know, your, your, your interest in it? I mean, yeah, for me, being born as an indigenous person is already getting born an activist. Because I get born in the community where we have to fight every single day to get access to the fresh water to drink, to fight for our land, to fight for our territories, to fight for our human rights as human beings, because we wanted to protect our nature. So I grow up in this movement, and when I see what creating all this climate impact, I have no choice that to fight, protect my people, and also to advocate for other indigenous peoples around the world. You just tell people a little bit more about your sort of upbringing, give people a bit of a sense of, because I think you grew, you know, you were saying that you spent a lot of time in the city and you, as you were growing up, but you obviously had this connection to sort of more traditional ways of life in rural areas. Just give us a bit more of a sense of what your upbringing was like. Yeah, so I think thanks to my mom who was at the time where no one sending the kids to school. So she fighted my father and all the men in her community to get a choice to send me and my sister to school. And at that time, she get rejected by her family, and she have to fight them and show them she is right. And then she have like to prove it. She said, my kids can go to the white people's school and they can never forget their own culture and identity. So in any holidays, she sent us back to the community. So we do all the activities that the other children are doing. And that is very hard because when I come back to the city, I go to school. The kids don't want to sit next to me. And when I go back to my community, the other kids say like, oh, you are going to the white people's school. Then try to like uh, hurt you to say like, are you feeling this pain because you are going to the white people's school? So I have to prove myself to my community and telling them that I have to know how to read and how to write. Sounds like you almost <laughs> sort of became like felt like an outsider in both camps. But that's nice actually because it's helped me to build a bridge between the two worlds, between the two culture, to really take the best from the. Western school mm. to take it to my community and take the reality of my community of living in harmony and take it back to this Western way of life. Before we move on, I just realised I, I wanted to know your, how did your mum win the argument on getting you to school? <laughs> so my mum fights it. So she's a fighter. She's a big fighter in her community, and still she is. So when she sent me to school, it was... Uh, so she was living with one woman sharing a house. And at that time, my dad 
went for like two years and then the woman gets sick. She gets gynecological problem. She went to the hospital, they gave her the medicine and she, she drank the medicine. She became sick. My mom ran with her to the hospital and then the doctor was shouting, you wanted to kill yourself. No one went to school. Why you didn't read the medicine before using it? My mom said like, gosh, it can happen to me also because I do not know how to read, how to write. And then she said like, it will never happen to my children. So that was the wake up call for her to send us to school. But she's amazing because now she's 60 something. So three years ago, she decided to go to school and now she's reading. How has sort of changing weather and climate in the region, how has that changed how different how people interact with each other? And I'm thinking like, you know, different communities and maybe possible tensions between communities. How has that changed over time? So people used to live in harmony between each other. And with the climate impact, when the people camp in one place, the cow dunk fertile the land. So that created the conflict between the farmers and pastoralists. They close the water access, and then you have either to go through the crops and you fight to the dead, or either you have to go around in the risk of getting your cattle to die somewhere. This is the reality of the conflict, not only in Chad, but around all the Sahel regions. Mm. And the conflict go beyond the frontiers and be political, like now in Boko Haram. So it gives more opportunity. It pushes to, people to the extreme. Yeah, to things. push people to the extreme, but to give also opportunity to the extreme peoples to come there. And have, have these sort of factors, has it not always been, the, is it not sort of been ever thus? Was it not always, or are you saying, you know, has it been made different by, you know, the way that... The, yeah, the world, yeah, the region is warmed and so on. It's completely different. What, what used to be earlier, there was enough water, enough pastures. And I left it. I mean, when I was child, it was also the life that I, I saw. I mean, I sell the milk to all the neighboring villages. And we know each other. They respect you. You respect them. They know you are the children of this person. But now it doesn't matter that from uh, which place that you come. You just have to fight to get access to these natural resources. Mm. And people become an enemy. And at the end of the day, like, I understand that. Because everyone wanted to protect his own family. But it's not only conflict also, it is a societal divisions. It's changed the role of man and woman. And that's very hard for the human dignity in our culture, in African culture, so man have the responsibility to feed his family. If you cannot feed your family, your dignity is under threat, like you are not a man. And everyone have to do everything to pay back his dignity. That's what put people more in the terrorism. Sorry, but we have to say it. So someone who can recruit them, giving them some money and giving them back their dignities, feeling like, okay, I'm a man. Mm-hmm. They have to do it, or they have to leave the community and tire it to be a migrant 
because they cannot accept that the dignity be down. When one man loses his dignity, it is not only him, it is his entire generation because they are going to say, oh, this is the wife of this man who was useless or this is the son of this man who is useless. This is the grandson of this man who is useless. So it is your entire generation who is affected by your own dignity. We're in Paris talking to the climate change and indigenous rights activist Hindu Umaru Ibrahim. She's not a native Parisian though, far from it. Her home is more than 6,000 kilometres away in Chad, where Lake Chad is a vital source of water for millions of people. But extreme changes in the region's climate mean it has shrunk to 10% of its size since the 1960s. Hindu has spent the last few years battling to save her community with the power of something called 3D mapping. This is essentially a piece of digital science which visualises the surrounding landscape to show local communities the changing environment. The idea being it will ultimately allow communities to share the ever-dwindling natural resources and live together in harmony. For me, it is quite obvious to use what I have in my hand, the knowledge of my people who are so great, who help us to be resilient for centuries and centuries, and use the other part of me, the science, and the technology and build a tools that can help to manage and share the natural resources and better mitigate the conflict. So how I do that, it's uh, using the satellite images when I wanted to do the 2D mapping and using the geographical information when I wanted to do the 3D mapping. Around Lake Chad, over 256 community leaders, and that means leaders of villages, leaders of uh, nomadic camp, and leaders of islands, because around Lake Chad you have a lot of islands. So I print the satellite image of the map. I went to the communities. We gathered over two weeks we map the traditional knowledge over the satellite map. We put, for example, the forests. And inside the forest, we have the sacred trees. We have the trees that we eat. We have the medicinal trees. We map the different water points. We have more than 10 different names of the water points. We have all the different crops that people grow up there. The rod, the main rod the corridor of movement of animals, the different bears. So all the traditional knowledge we put there is combined the elders, the younger generation, and women. It is the place where you give the chance the women to express what they're saying, what they're doing, their knowledge, and be in the role of the leadership. So at the end, when we put all the knowledge, I take the photo of the map and I digitalize it through a software, and we print the map back, and we go back to the communities. That will help me to do a charter, like a conventions, like chapter one on how they can better manage and share the natural resources. Chapter two, it's how they can mitigate the conflict over resources. Chapter three, in how they can use, share, conserve the traditional knowledge of the communities. Okay. 
got you. Uh, I, I want to come on to the sort of empowering women. Is that an issue then that like quite often this sort of work might just be undertaken with like male tribal leaders and women just don't have a voice? Is, is that quite, it sounds like that's quite an important part of it to you. For me, it is a very important part because we are in the society who is very patriarchal. And we are in the society where the response to the climate change from men and women are different. Because so most of the time, men, uh, I say, they run away from the problem because they go out to the cities or to another place to find another job. And then they say like, okay, you stay home with the kids, with the elders, and then when we get the money, we can send it to you back. And it is the society when women are extraordinary innovators, solutions makers, but they are not taking the decisions still. So for me, when they are doing the solution, they take the decisions, it will be really more for the community to be resilient. What impact does this mapping have? You know, maybe, I don't know if you want to give an example or two. Firstly, it's putting the peoples together, people who are fighting for the resources. So make them sit down and discuss that's really very important. So it can help to build a uh, relationship and then uh, reconsideration where there is a conflict. They can go over talking than fighting. They build alliances between them and understanding. And then the second is how they can think all together, not in silo, to build a solutions for their regions, for their communities, to see how they can live in harmony and then the third is, of course, empowering the women. But our history are oral. Our knowledge are oral. So how from the oral way of transmissions, the elders can translate their knowledge to the younger generations mm. and the wisdom and let them keep this wisdom for all the upcoming generations. And it is the way also to make the politicians at the national, at the local level, to consider that community are not victims of the climate change, but they are solutions and how they can take the solutions, put that in the national planning documents, put that in a legislations that can help the entire country to drive. It has a lot of benefit that from just like a small mapping mm. done by the community. Your work on this mapping, it's sort of been very much recognised. You were announced back in 2021 as the Rolex Laureate at their Awards for Enterprise programme. How does that sort of recognition in the wider world help you get those resources you need and you know make a difference on the ground? That makes a big difference. Firstly, I have been very touched by a personal recognitions because most of the time when you do an activity, they recognize the work that you are doing. They do not understand the sacrifice that you did in your life, in your private life, family life, to do all the work. And then Rolex give me just like our for myself as Hindu, not as like organizations. That was a big meaningful for me. The second, of course, is about the money. It's helped to really pack all the process I did for years with the community, to turn it into the reality, to fund the activity that I love. And then the final part is the connection. The connection with other Rolex Aware, who are so smart, is like a network. The connection with other people outside, from the media, 
from other people who just like taking my history, who is a little indigenous woman history there, and making it big outside, making the world understand we are not only the victim, we are fighting to build the solutions. And I hope that can give the examples to the bigger people who get more resources, more technology, to be aspire and say, I can do more if an indigenous organizations did that. You wear several hats. So just tell me, tell me a little about, about some of the other organizations you, you work <laughs> with and what, and what you do. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's hard because I'm kind of the person who do not know to say no when uh, I see that it's have to help people and the planet. I'm always saying yes and I'm jumping in. So I'm uh, playing a role as an ambassador of the Chad government to help them on the climate adaptations, mitigations, to help change the policies at the national level. And then I'm so grateful that they recognize that and many ministries are trusting me and I'm helping them to work on that. I'm leading a project between the Sahel regions from Benin, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, to build a network of indigenous women around all their countries. So I'm monitoring them. And I'm one of the UN SDG advocates. The Sustainable Development Goals. The Sustainable Development Goals. And from UK peoples, of course, I'm one of the judge of Brian Williams' Earthshot Prize. So yeah, I'm just like on and on and on. (laughs) Earthshot Prize, Indigenous Peoples Groups, Climate Groups, Governments, making me feel a bit dizzy, Hindu. Um, Okay. Um, So let's, um, we've talked quite, let's sort of look forward a little bit. We've talked a lot about Chad, understandably. just maybe tell me a little bit about what the sort of mapping work that you've been doing there. What sort of benefits could that bring to the wider Sahel region? I think you might have some work coming up in Niger. Yes, right. So many people are telling me, oh, this place is risky. It is dangerous between Niger and uh, Algeria. So and that place is... I'm like, yeah, not because it is dangerous that we cannot work there. So if we start like choosing the place that we like, we work on it, we will never end up the climate issues or biodiversity loss. We cannot choose. We're sitting here in Paris now, which despite all its nuclear power, France is, you know, through its consumption, a, a relatively big carbon emitter, um, obviously hugely so compared to a country like Chad. Uh, uh, I mean, we've had decades of international climate talks and... Um, the climate crisis obviously requires sort of a multilateral kind of action. What do you make of richer countries' response to climate change? Firstly, like when I sit in Paris or, of course, like London or uh, New York, I'm always fascinating about the overconsumptions. Just when I go to the supermarket and I look at everything is packed with aspirational debt. So you have to use it by... Uh, one week, by less than one week, by whatever, even the potatoes. So I'm fascinated about that. I'm like, from my world, that you need a label we never <laughs> have the... So you eat everything. If you cannot eat it, you dry it up. So from this way of consumptions. So I think the developed world have to wake up and get this responsibility 
there is no resources that just are coming from the sky. It's not another planet. They are taking from this planet. So they have to stop extracting more what they do not need. They just to consume or produce what people are needing. Got you. So, so looking forward, Hindu, we've got, you know, another climate summit at the end of this year in, in the UAE. And, you know, obviously one of the things there is going to be about money for developing countries from the impacts of climate change. And how do you see things unfolding and, and where do you see the reasons for hope? Yeah, so the uh, climate conference that is going to be happening, the COP28, might be a place where they can give hope to the peoples. If the developed world come with a concrete way of funding the loss and damage, this is one of the outcome of the COP27. They recognize the responsibility of damaging the earth. In the COP26, we celebrated 1.7 billions for indigenous peoples to protect the land and forest. When we went to the COP27, only 7% of this money went to the indigenous peoples from the 19%. 93 of it went back to the big organization and government. And the final thing, we are going to a oil country. It will be giving hope if they stop digging the blood of the earth. But beyond, personally, what will give me hope, it's my people. It's my community. It's indigenous communities around the world who never wait for anyone else, but who continuously believing on the duty that we have vis-a-vis to our heirs. We are innovating. We are making solutions through our traditional knowledge. And that gives me really hope. And the final thing that's giving me hope is the new generation around the world from developed or developing countries. It doesn't matter what the developed world is doing. When I see they stand up in Germany, again, the coal mining, that the young people come around all the Europe, they say you cannot do that. So I'm sure that they are going to hold all their government accountable. I'm sure that they are going to be a good leaders. I'm sure they are going to vote for the right peoples who can get us out from this climate and crisis disaster around the world. So this is a big hope, and that can give me more energy to fight more and more, do my mapping, but go tell the truth at the international level. The UK at COP27, which you were at, the UK was there busy telling other countries to stop using coal and then shortly afterwards a few weeks afterwards the UK government decided to green light its first coal mine for 30 years wonder what you thought of that that's the problem I think to do not trust the politicians they are so unpredictable they can come and laugh with you and just to hurt you in your back and at the end of the day when they saw they are going to lose the power because people in the UK are standing up. There is an energy crisis and it is really not bad. You are not running well the countries. The only solution that they get, okay, let's turn back to the coal mine. So are we going to trust them again? I think we cannot trust them until we have a new community of leaders coming from the young generation who are not fearing to face the realities, who are more courageous. I think they do not have courage.
You've been listening to Planet Hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, the environmental advocate, Hindu Umari Ibrahim. This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. The series producer is Anya Pierce. The podcast producer is Ben Mitchell. The production coordinator is Oliver Adamson. And the production assistant is Shana Johnson. You can listen to us for free on The Times Radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. For nearly a century, Rolex has championed pioneering explorers who have shed light on the world and pushed the boundaries of human endeavour. Today's explorers are no exception, but they have a new focus, to make the planet perpetual. The Earth, once a playground for discovery, now needs our help to protect and preserve the natural world. Rolex supports the individuals and organisations who are protecting our world and inspiring generational hope as a part of its commitment to a perpetual planet. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on rolex.org.